Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Michael Kim, uh, founder of Sindana Capital. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, great to be here. So Michael, why don't you give a brief background into what is Sindana, uh, why you started it, and where you are today? Okay, so I mean, I simply put, we're an investment management firm, and we are investing in the seed venture capital ecosystem. So what I mean by that is seed funds in the U.S. as well as outside of the U.S., as well as co-investments into portfolio companies from our fund managers. And so I started this in 2010. It took me a while to raise the first fund. We can talk all about the fun aspects of fundraising. But, um, you know, I think right now we're positioned pretty well to be one of the first calls as an LP for someone who's looking to raise a seed fund. And I would say that we were pretty early and I wouldn't say we were first, but we were pretty early in identifying the space. And this is all we do. So that really helps yeah. with our market position. And what was that gap that, that you identified and wanted to capture? Well, you know, I mean, if you look at venture sort of in a, a, a broader arc, in the late 90s, the standard deal in software was five on five, right? Two uh, Sandhill Road firms, each two and two and a half. At, at a five pre, they're getting, you know, a quarter of the company. And, you know, the, the entrepreneur would have to raise $5 million to do a software company because they were buying Sun Microsystems servers. They were paying software licenses. So, you know, literally it's an order of magnitude cheaper now, right? 500 k you can get going, primarily because of AWS and the cloud, uh, open source software. And, you know, what, what really drove, I think, the proliferation of seed funds, or at least created that opportunity, is that, you know, the best firms like Sequoia, Excel, Benchmark, Greylock, they, they all became much, much bigger. And then at the same time, you know, it was a lot cheaper to start a company. So that created that gap. And then in the early 2000s, you saw firms like Union Square, Foundry, True, focus on smaller Series A. I guess you could yeah. even argue that they were seed at one point. But, and then in the mid-2000s, first round capital, late 2000s, you had actually Super Angels, like Jeff Claudier, and you never hear Super Angels anymore. Yeah. But, Why not? You know, because everyone's an angel? Well, everyone's an angel, but, you know, Super Angels, I think I would have defined it as someone who's doing investing full-time yeah. with their own money. But I think with the proliferation of seed funds, part of that is because institutional LPs wanted to start deploying capital. So instead of being a Super Angel, the Super Angels actually went out and raised outside capital. They went pro, so to speak. Yeah, so those two big dynamics, a lot cheaper starter company, Best firms becoming really big created this gap where all these smaller firms uh, started filling in. And you've been doing this for you know ten almost a decade. How has your thesis evolved, or has it stayed the same throughout? Well, I can talk about what has stayed the same. You know, even when I started, one of the guiding principles, and we can talk about this in terms of how we evaluate all the opportunities. That we've always looked for firms that lead their investments. So if you just use that one filter. You know, they talk about seven, eight hundred seed funds in the U.S. You know, if you apply that one filter to those firms, probably five to seven percent can actually lead a deal. They have the credibility to lead the deal. Um, the rest are just following in in a syndicate, or you know, pejoratively put. Uh, some people will say it's spraying and praying. Um, so I think if you, if you maintain that one filter from the get-go, which I think we have, 
um, you would have identified some pretty outstanding fund managers. I think, you know, certainly the round sizes at seed have gotten bigger, and, and certainly um, seed in itself, you know, writ large, has sort of titrated into uh, three buckets, pre-seed, seed, and then seed extension. It was kind of crazy. So by the time, you know, you're raising a Series A, it could have been three or four rounds. So seed rounds getting bigger, but what hasn't really changed too much is the dilution that founders are taking when they do the seed round. So they, you know, it's kind of fluctuating between 20 to 25. You know, we can talk about that too, but I would say that, you know, it, it's become a uh, lot more seed funds, titrating three buckets, round sizes are bigger, dilution about the same, and, um, you know, certainly there's a lot more. You've had a point of view on portfolio construction. Yes. So talk about how you It's do that. super important to us. In fact, it's, it's almost shocking to see the number of decks from fund, people trying to raise a fund, fund managers, that don't talk about portfolio construction. Because ultimately, that's what an LP is buying. We're buying not only you know, the GP, their access, their thinking, their, uh, their taste, their, um, their nose for finding great companies, but what we are literally buying by investing in the fund is actually that portfolio. And so it has to make mathematical sense. It's actually simple math. You know, if you're going to raise a billion-dollar fund, you better own a lot of the company that each company that you invest in. That's an extreme example. But, you know, let's say if you're the, the typical fund that we would have is, let's say, $75 million, And, you know, you, you really want to do the math to figure out what kind of exit would it take in order for one investment to return the entire fund. You know, if you're a billion-dollar fund and you own 20%, you know, it would take a $5 billion exit, right? Not that many $5 billion exits. So you can do the math and then, you know, so that's why in our fundamental thesis is that smaller funds outperform. And you also have a strong point of view on concentration versus a more diversified portfolio. Yeah, so if you take that um, thinking about, you know, ownership, and we're looking specifically for GPs that have high, higher ownership, you know, you can't lead 100 rounds a year. You know, you can't be, in, from the entrepreneur's perspective, they want a partner who's going to be helping them build the company, working with them to, you know, whether it's partnership, building out the team, helping with the product roadmap, thinking about milestones to raise the next round. All that stuff, I think, it takes a lot of time. And, you know, there are ways to address it, perhaps. Like, you know, if you had a big platform with a number of people trying to help the companies, um, so it's not just the GP. Like first round. Yeah. But that is harder to do, and you need resources to hire all those people. But, you know, fundamentally, because we're looking for more, for the GPs who lead their deals, invariably, and maybe intrinsically, those portfolios, it's it's more concentrated. Yeah, and what what is the ideal size of your range? Well, I'll I'll give you some some metrics just from our portfolio uh, of all these different funds. I would say that, on average, uh, we have about 25 to 35 million of capital per partner. So a, a three-person firm like Freestyle or a three-person firm like um, Uncourt, Jeff Claudius. Yeah. Um, you know, those are 90 million, 100 million, respectively, three partners, right? So basically, we see 25 to 35 million per partner. And then in terms of pace of investing, we see generally one new investment per partner per quarter. So to use, um, you know, a, a single GP might have 12 to 15 companies over three years. A, a two GP firm might have 24 to 26, and three GPs might have, you know, somewhere between 35, 37. So that's generally speaking what we see. You know, those could be argued, it could be argued that that's relatively concentrated. 
And would you, if someone came to you and said, hey, we built out this incredible platform team that rivals something like our first round, and we're going to do double that because it's going to increase our chances of getting a unicorn, would you say, hey, I, I'm not, I don't buy it, I'm not interested? Again, then you, you have this, it's, it's a multivariable problem because then you have to think about, well, what kind of ownership can they get? And if they're out there making, to use extreme examples, 100 investments, but yet you're, they're still maybe getting 10% ownership. You know, it's a lot of capital being deployed. The fund has to be bigger. Maybe that larger fund does have more management fees so that they can hire more platform people. So, you know, you can see how all these different variables, all these right. different dials you can turn in order to get to, to the thing, but all, to get it rightly, rightly and correctly configured. But, you know, ultimately it's about the GPs being able to be in the mix, seeing awesome deal flow, and then picking the right, right. And so some people have the argument of, hey, if uh, my unicorn rate is 3% or 5%, I should do as many investments as possible in ways that I don't reduce that unicorn rate. So that's that I get a percentage, I get enough shots on gold to have a chance to unicorn. Right. From your perspective, does that make less sense because because you have a fund of funds, you, you already have yeah. <laughs> so 100, 100 Well, I guess from my perspective as running a Sendana Capital, we do have a number of funds and they have a number of companies. Just to give you a sense, we have over 1,300 portfolio companies from our fund managers. But, you know, what I would argue is that, and, and Dave McClure at 500 and actually Jerry Newman in New York have done, um, have argued that perhaps it's a wider number of companies, a larger number of companies that you need. So Jerry actually did a pretty interesting study, which he posted on Twitter, about, you know, how many companies one would need in order to get a certain multiple. I, I think his original number came out to be, you know, close to a thousand companies. Um, Dave McClure also has argued that a large number of companies is the only way to actually unearth a lot of unicorns. Um, what I would argue is that ownership, you have to overlay in that into the thinking. And sure, you could invest in a thousand companies, but investing, you know, a hundred dollars into a thousand companies, it's not going to generate the return. So, you know, again, multivariable problem, lots of dials to turn. Um, I think ownership is super important. And, you know, ultimately we are, you know, if you look at public market investing, there's passive and, you know, um, active management, right? You have fund managers, you have stock pickers, the rest are just ETFs, right? I, we're not looking for the ETF of seed investing. So we're looking for the, the person uh, who can identify great entrepreneurs. And, 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 you know, to be honest, out of those 1,300 companies, 29 are actually unicorns already. And if you look at the, um, what our fund managers have done in their prior funds, Overall, we have 70 unicorns from our, our, our roster of managers. And I think that's a phenomenal record. Just to give you a contrast, you know, I, my, my last, um, my understanding of, um, is that YC right now is almost twice as old as us. They have a lot more companies than us, and they have less unicorns and less companies that have gone to 100 million. That said, you know, they have Airbnb and Dropbox, so absolute dollar-wise, it's, it's been phenomenal. But I think it's a testament to our fund managers. They picked great companies and it's at the seed stage. Yeah. So uh, when we talk about multiple variables, one of the other variables is uh, follow on. And if you wanted to increase ownership, some people say, well, why don't you take some of the follow on dollars and put it for first checks and see if you're right. Yeah. So I think, you know, um, actually harkening back to your earlier question, what has sort of changed? I think generally we were starting out thinking two to one reserves. So for every dollar in the initial check, $2 follow on. I've actually refined my thinking around that. I think larger funds, larger seed funds can be two to one. And so if you had a $75 million fund, think of it as 25 investments of 1 million. And so that's the, you know, 25 million of initial checks. 
50 million in reserves. And, but now we think that if you're actually below 50 million, smaller funds, like, you know, like 25 million, 25 to 50, maybe it's one-to-one -one reserves. And actually, if you're small, like a, a demo fund, if you're just starting out, want to improve the world, what you can do, you know, we think no reserves is perfectly fine. Buy the ownership up front. If you're a $10 million demo fund, buying, um, you know, ownership, all your ownership up front is, I think, would prove the point. It's really more about the access to the great deal fund. And, and what's the argument for the uh, two-to-one uh, reserve to first check on yeah. 75 instead yeah. of just all first checks and you get double the companies and right. increase ownership? Well, ultimately, these companies do need to raise additional rounds of capital. And if you're a bigger fund and you're buying, you know, you're investing, you know, X amount of dollars for 15%, well, to maintain that 15% in subsequent larger rounds, you know, you have to, your parada is much, much larger. And so it gets to a point where a seed fund can't do its full parada, at, at, largely at Series B. You know, you're right, maybe instead of 15 years, let's say 25 companies at a million, you're writing with 50 million reserves, you're writing 25 checks of 3 million and, you know, just letting it run. Yeah. So what I would argue is that we actually have one, uh, not an argument, point out, we have a fund manager uh, founder collective yeah. in Boston, which actually has a very unique point of view, in my mind, uh, on follow-ons. And it's, um, they simply just don't do it if the next round is above a, a certain level of valuation. Yeah. And uh, why don't more people follow that? Thing? Well, that's a good question. I think, you know, part of having reserves is to maintain your ownership. Part of it, I think historically, and I wouldn't say seed funds should be doing this, but historically reserves were also there to, um, I mean, clearly to support the company, but also somewhat defensive in that, you know, if the company is having, um, it's going sideways, maybe you have a new investor coming in on a, that wants to put some structure on it. Maybe the existing investors do a bridge that's kind of a down run or a pay to play where you get hurt if you don't participate. So, you know, some, a little bit of dry powder to, to protect yourself in those situations, I think was the uh, conventional thinking. What I would point out actually is that there are very few companies who've had down, uh, who've had pay to plays or cram downs that have come out doing extremely well out of that. So our advice actually to our fund managers is if it's a structured uh, round, if it's a pay to play, just walk away. Yeah. Don't, don't put good money after bad because generally speaking, it's not really worked out. So if more fund managers came to you with founder collective strategy, pushing it, most of it upfront, that wouldn't be disqualifying to you? Or is it something unique about a founder collective team that makes that strategy work where it wouldn't for emerging? I mean, I, I generally agree with that. In that I don't, I, it's not disqualifying if someone came into us and said, hey, we're not reserving. I mean, we would want to see reserves uh, for a variety of reasons, including defensive, plus also um, trying to maintain some ownership. But, you know, I, I, I think the other reality is that great entrepreneurs may not just want one VC doing the entire round at the seed stage. And so if you're going to have to syndicate a, a $3 million round and the entrepreneur wants two groups at $1.5 million, you know, that's what it's going to be, right? Yeah. The founder has a lot of say these days. And so, and, and rightly so. So, you know, I think, again, it's just so many uh, different um, dials that need to be turned. Generally speaking, we like reserves and our, our thinking, just to uh, put a bow on it, larger funds should be closer to two-to-one reserves. Smaller funds, they could have almost no reserves. Right. And the alternative strategy to 25, $3 million checks would be like uh, 50, $1.5 checks, but then that gets into the problem we talked about earlier, which is founders doing too many checks. 
Founders doing too many checks. Well, that's exactly right. Yes. So it's, if you're going to write 50, one and a half million dollar checks with no reserves, I think that would be hard to deploy, especially if you're going to be a lead, co-lead uh, type of role in these companies. I mean, let's say you do that over a three-year period. You know, that's almost 20 companies a year. And that's, you know, almost uh, two companies a month. And to lead two companies a month, you know, even with two partners, you're still doing 12 a year. And that means you're on 12 not technically on the board, but you're really working closely with the founders on 12 companies. And I think that's a lot. Yeah. You've seen, we, we talked about earlier how there's been a proliferation of, of seed funds. How have you made sense of it as a, as a fund funds um, in terms of filtering these managers and, and what you look for is part of it that you yourself have a portfolio where maybe you started with mostly generalists, but now there's the rise of sector specific and you're picking the, here's the consumer one. Here's the biotech one. Here's the, Enterprise, how do you think about that? Yeah, so it's a lot of different dimensions to talk about. But, you know, with our own portfolio construction, we want to be the largest LP in each one. We think, you know, similar to a, a GP wanting a high level of ownership, we want to have a high level of ownership with our portfolio funds. I would say that, you know, that one filter I mentioned, which is does the GP have the credibility to lead their investment to get that ownership? That's been super valuable. The other one we actually use is um, about ecosystems. So for us, we think about it in three vectors, high-quality high um, uh, founders, high-quality co-investors, and a ton of local follow-on. And so to use an extreme example, you could be the go-to seed fund in, um, in Istanbul, but they don't have larger VCs there. So they're relying on VC funds from Berlin or you know, the continent or the U.K., to fly in and do the subsequent rounds. And that makes life much harder for their funds, for, I mean, for their portfolio companies. So, you know, I, I think we started investing outside the U.S. last year because some of the ecosystems that we've looked at have actually gotten better. London actually has now a number of new Series A funds. Berlin has a number of new Series A funds. So, you know, I, I think those two filters, you know, what can, can, do they have the credibility to lead the deal? And what's the ecosystem look like, including a lot of fall-on capital? If you use those two filters, you know, I think you kind of self-select down to uh, in maybe a, a pool of like 20, 25 fund managers worldwide. Yeah. And have you backed any in Europe yet? No, but we've spent a lot of time looking at it. But we've made six commitments, actually, to non-U.S. fund managers. So Israel, Toronto, three now in, in China, wow. um, one in Australia, and we're planning to uh, we have one in India and planning to do another in India. What sectors have you done specifically? Yeah, I mean, you're right in that um, back in the day, most of these uh, firms were generalists, right? So and I think I've made a comment um, in an interview that I thought that, you know, it's actually hard, harder to be a generalist now because you have the incumbents, meaning that if, you're a, if you want to start your own new firm, you know, saying that you're going to be a generalist, that means you're going to be competing against you know, people like Jeff Claudia or the Larry Hippo team or whomever. And, you know, I think to be more thematic, is you really need to position yourself in the market and to be able to answer how, how am I going to beat that person out on a, on a term sheet. Now, granted, most people are coming in and saying, hey, we're just going to syndicate with those guys. We're just going to be part of the round. But I think if you're going to be the thought leader and, um, you know, being able to compete with the, with the groups that are leading their investments, you, you really have to be um, – Either someone who's super credible, maybe coming out of a, a, a bigger Sand Hill Road firm with a great track record, or 
amazing domain expertise or an amazing network. So, you know, we funded a group um, called Wave Capital. You know, Riley Newman was uh, employee seven at Airbnb. He was their, he ran their data sciences team. You know, someone who's very credible within that firm. And so that, that kind of network at Airbnb is, it, we viewed as, as having substantial value. We'll see how it plays out, but, you know, that's an example where, you know, someone um, who may not have had great in, uh, a deep investment experience or track record, but brings something very valuable to the table. Did you guys do Forerunner? Yes. So with Forerunner, we were um, the first to commit to them. And so in their first fund at 40, I think their fund, Kirsten's first fund was like 41 million. We were 10 million of that. In our second fund, we were 20 million of it. And our second fund, I believe, was 75 million or so. Yeah. You know, that's an example of someone who has tremendous domain expertise. She started off with like a, a demo fund. A friend of hers had given her a small pool of capital. She started deploying it. And as part of her diligence, we would call the CEOs of those companies and say, you know, we're looking at Kirsten's fund. Um, we know that she wrote you a small check, but what do you think of her? And, you know, almost all the CEOs said, Kirsten's so amazing. She knows more than most of our investors. She's our first call. And, you know, if she had a $40 million fund, of course we would have let her leave the seed round. So that kind of, that's actually, I think, a good playbook for someone who's looking to raise a, a fund. Start off with a demo fund and, and be close, and help be very helpful to the CEOs that you back. You don't need a $40 million first fund. You know, a number of our fund managers, like freestyle guys, for example, all started off with small funds. Manu Kumar, $6 million fund, right? You know, if we, we didn't, we're not invested with Chris Saka, but his first fund was $8 million, right? Yeah. And so I think you really just want to be able to show that you can have access and also add a lot of value to, um, to, to the portfolio CEOs. Yeah, and do you get involved with demo funds, or when, when is the earliest you get involved, or what's like the smallest fund size you'll be a part of? It makes sense. Yeah, you know, I think the smallest fund that we committed to was um, twelve million. It was Mucker's first fund, and you know, Mucker Capital in LA is has done an amazing job. I mean, they have two funds that are in the top five percentile. You know, these are generating major returns yeah. and have distributed major amounts of capital. Yeah, let's say you know you've got you're you're backing a fund and they you know, uh, fund one, fund two, 75, maybe 100, and then it goes up to, you know, 300, 400, and they're on their way to being the next injury thing. My understanding is that you, you tend not to participate then. Right. Is it just, hey, your fund size is your strategy, and you don't believe that bigger funds will make money, or how do you think about that? Does it make as much money? I mean, I mean, Sequoia's funds are relatively large compared right. to what we look at, and they make a huge amount of money. So it's not so much that, it's just our strategy is focused on seed, and our LPs, only want seed. Our LPs can probably get access to the larger funds, and so they don't need us to try to access the small, the sub one hundred million. Um, so generally speaking, you know, it's not in our LP agreement, but generally speaking, we look for funds under hundred million in size. And it's because at the seed stage, you know, if we're looking for someone who's leading their investments, again, you can't have a whole bunch of properties, and the round sizes are a certain amount, and our fund managers are writing X percent. Yeah. That just, you know, on a bottoms-up analysis comes out to roughly about $100 million. Yeah. So you did your forerunner as a consumer. What other thematic funds have you backed? I'm curious how you view emerging categories like crypto and, and longevity. Yes. You know, it, it's interesting because a lot of this has come in waves. So actually, blockchain and, and crypto, we saw a number of those funds, um, in fact, like three or four or five years ago. 
we just thought it was way too early. So I, I personally invested in funds like um, blockchain capital, Brad and Mark Stevens. You know, we don't do biotech, but you know, Laura Deming at Longevity Fund, she had a very interesting thesis. She's an amazing person. So again, I invested personally and you know, Longevity wasn't a seed fund. They're largely focused on Series A, but the financing dynamics in biotech is completely different, right? Their Series A might be $100 million. And, and so, you know, going back to the, the, uh, the wave thing, you know, um, what I would say is that we saw a wave of blockchain funds, we saw a wave of AR, VR funds, a wave of, you know, IoT, connected home, connected device. We even saw, you know, a, a, a couple funds focused specifically on, on cars and trucks. So we see that. And I think, you know, back to my earlier point, it makes sense for people who have that domain expertise to go after and position themselves in the market. The real problem is, are you really, are you too early or are you, well, actually, and or have you defined yourself too, in, in, too narrowly? And so, generally speaking, we've not invested in those funds. And, um, you know, I think in 2017, just to pick on blockchain, you know, people were piling in. You get in all these different groups, um, some of the hedge, more hedge fund-like ones, the equity ones, buying tokens. And, you know, by end of 2018, people were pretty bummed out. It's good that it's kind of recovered, and maybe the long-term arc is that it's going to be super valuable. Maybe it is the next sort of TCPIP, but you know we don't know that. And if you look at the uh, adoption of DAP, different DAPs, it's, it's pretty low. Right. Some people say that YC has the has sort of an unfair advantage where they have, or the best structural business model where they have high ownership and very wide portfolio. In your model, would you have? missed something like YC or not have done something like YC or what's been your thoughts on the rise of YC or the rise of accelerators generally? You know, I think clearly YC is the most dominant and and rightly so in terms of the accelerators and it's a great business model. They're getting six plus percent for, you know, for actually a a very small check. You know, I I wonder about their portfolios because, you know, their class sizes have increased materially. I would say that AngelPad is also a very, very, respected accelerator but you know taking a step back we actually don't invest in accelerators and you know we're close to a number of them but i would say that there is a worrisome thing for us is adverse selection and you know generally a second or third time seasoned entrepreneur can go out and raise their own uh, own round without having to go through an accelerator i would say that most of the accelerators have younger um, founders uh, or first-time founders. There's nothing wrong with that, and they've identified some great ones. But generally speaking, you know, I, I just kind of wonder if you're a great entrepreneur with a great opportunity, you should be able to go out there and you know raise a round from either a seed fund or, or the best entrepreneurs can just probably go to Sequoia and raise a ten million dollar Series A right off the right. bat. Do you do you have that same fear as it relates to things like Atomic or Expo or Science or? You know, those, those groups have all come up with some amazing companies. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, I would say that being able to create amazing companies every year, year in, year out, would be kind of an amazing feat. And I'm not sure that they can do that. But, you know, they do have – they've had tremendous success. And, you know, I think um, a lot of our fund managers are actually pursuing group companies coming out of there. And so – but the fact is, you know, the world is a big place. The market forces are important. And, you know, Leonardo da Vinci came up with a whole bunch of different ideas. I'm not saying that the Expo guys or the Atomic guys are not Leonardo, but, 
you know, to be able to come up with amazing ideas consistently and also create an environment where you're fostering that is, is hard because also if you're an entrepreneur and you're going to an incubator, I don't know what those guys take specifically, but generally speaking, incubators take a really healthy cut of your company. Yeah. 50, 60, 70%. Yeah. What, do you, what has been the most innovative uh, seed fund since first round? Like, when they came out the platform, like, what would have been some of the waves of innovation on first round seed? seed? Well, let, let me just think about this. What, what I would say is that, you know, as an innovation, I think um, the seed funds have, have come up with this idea of an opportunity fund. And so for us, we're actually kind of happy that they did that because, you know, someone like Jeff Claudia, he can go out and raise a $200, $300 million fund. But, you know, he wants to have his seed fund a certain size and then the opportunity fund is, a, is another size. And so, in a way, that innovation, which I think came out of having to do, not, not necessarily for Jeff, but, you know, seed fund managers doing SPVs, and it's a pain in the ass to do an SPV and to track them and to also, you know, just deal dynamic. You're, you're going to the founder saying, hey, can you give me a $5 million allocation? And then on the other hand, you're going to your LP saying, hey, I got a $5 million allocation. Can we fill the SPV? And oftentimes, or sometimes when you can't, it creates a lot of friction. So, you know, I think the opportunity fund idea was a pretty good innovation. But, you know, I think the platform and the services, that sort of mentality is at a high level really good because, you know, you're really putting um, the burden on the VC to provide service to the founder. And ultimately, that is what you want to see in a venture capital firm in that they're not just providing the cash. Now, of course, you know, there's, of course, the, the, the benchmark example where they invested in eBay. eBay never even touched the money. They went public. It was a phenomenal return for benchmark and their investors. You know, so you can always point to things like that. And, you know, it is often very profitable to be lucky. Um, but, you know, I think being able to identify great entrepreneurs, being able to help them, the whole service mentality, it's a mixed bag, but I think the trend is generally a good thing. Yeah. So, so that's it, you know, opportunity funds and, and, and platforms, you know, being, trying to be able to help. Otherwise, you know, most of the seed funds, they don't have that much management fee. They're not creating some special sauce in order to do what they do. You could point to sort of early stage firms. Uh, I wouldn't call them a seed fund, but like, you know, Signal Fire, you know, Chris Farmer, he has this amazing database that everybody in the world wants to get. Um, you know, so that might create some innovation around finding signal out of all that noise. Yeah. Have, uh, how have you viewed the rise of scouts, scout programs, and its effect on venture? What are your thoughts on it? Well, starting at the high level, I would say that, you know, a number of the, the Sand Hill Road crowd have been pretty active. They've been active in, in the seed stage, but then a number of them pulled back because, you know, they were doing it more, more as call options, being able to see what was coming up. And they were getting some blowback, to just use an example. If Excel didn't lead the, the Series A of a company that they'd put in a little bit in the seed, then, you know, that would be a negative signal. And I, I just mentioned Excel because it's a very important firm, and it does send a signal if they're not participating or leading the round. So, you know, I think the bigger firms realize that they're getting some um, reputational hit by uh, doing a lot of seed investing, not necessarily knowing the companies or the, the founders, and then not coming through with the Series A. The founders are getting upset about that. So I think, you know, the way Sequoia did it is actually pretty smart. You know, to have their sort of friendly network of people actively looking on, out on their behalf 
And, you know, that's ultimately, you know, what you want to do. It's almost like fishing. You want to cast your net wide, but you've got to know where to cast it, right? You, uh, and then you have to be able to, I, I'd be able to uh, hook a, a fish, and then, and then thirdly, you've got to bring them in. And so I think with the scout programs, to use that fishing analogy, it's just casting a wider net, but Sequoia kind of knows where they want to fish. And right. so, you know, it's, it's an enhancement, but it's not a replacement for what they do. Yes, but Sequoia has also spun out, and a number of other people have spun out sort of independent funds that are focused on, on this. Do you think that those funds can, be, can return well? There's scout funds about them, so as opposed to just yeah, well, the flow for the egg. I mean, you know, so th- th- just to keep on the, the topic of Sequoia itself, you know, they have they are very close to a number of early stage investors and, and, and individuals as well as funds, and not just in the U.S. In, in, you know, in, in the other geographies that they're in. And so I think um, you know those serve to be really good onboarding paths for entrepreneurs to start working with Sequoia. And Sequoia covers the full stack, right? I mean, they have scouts, they have their seed program, they have their their early stage venture, and they have their growth. So, you know, they can continue on. And, you know, to use an extreme example, WhatsApp is a great example of where Sequoia kept it all under one roof, right? And they reap tremendous uh, alpha in return for that. You know, I, I think looking at our portfolio, you know, our guys um, and gals, you know, clearly want to have tight relationships with the downstream capital. And so what they do is our, our fund managers typically spend time with the larger funds, uh, perhaps every quarter going through their portfolio. Maybe it's not even as formal as sitting in a conference room and going name my name, but, you know, they talk to the different partners. And, of course, each partner at a bigger firm, they, they really have a, their own sort of areas of focus. And it's the job of our fund managers to know that that person in that firm wants to have these kind of deals. And, you know, just being able to know that is super important. So scouts, they're important clearly to firms like Sequoia and, and, and the like. But from our point of view, our portfolio fund point of view, um, it's important for them to have strong relationships with the Sequoias and benchmarks in the world. If you look at a firm like Thrive, uh, I, think I don't know if their first firm was 10 or 40. It was pretty small. And now it's like... Yeah, I, I met with Josh back in the day. Yep. Yeah. And so I'm curious why there aren't more firms that start out small, but that say, hey, we want to be the next Sequoia, but we're going to start small and then work our way up. Most funds, it seems, tend to, maybe not as much as they're up as like, but stick, you know, first round, do this same thing for a while. Like, they could expand if they wanted to. USB, you know, I mean, all, all, a lot, even Jeff, Clavier, perhaps, a lot of these firms could go a lot bigger. Well, just to use some names, you know, you, you mentioned Forerunner, and we were invested with them in Fund 1 and 2, but then, you know, Kirsten um, became, it, she, she started raising larger funds, and to her credit, you know, even from day one, she was saying it's, that she's not sure that seed is the right entry point for company, the companies that she's going after, the, the spaces that she goes after. Um, so that's totally fair, and you may need to have more capital in order to maintain your ownership, and it may take a longer time. You know, in the case of Thrive, I think Josh is a very unique person. Um, his network is very unique, and, you know, he has an extremely good nose at finding great opportunities and is not afraid to write big checks against that. And so, you know, he clearly has done very, very, very well. Um, you know, I know that when I first met with him, I think he had a small pool of capital uh, from General Callis or some friends, 
and then he raised like a 40 plus kind of million dollar fund. But even then he was saying that he wanted to have a larger fund to be able to go after opportunities um, across the sort of the spectrum, not just C, not that, not just A. So, you know, he, he was just thinking about it as, as a, in terms of sort of a bigger opportunity set. And you could argue that like Tiger Global thinks that way too, but then they started moving down earlier. So they were starting to do series A's, for example, notwithstanding that their fund is really big. So, you know, I, I think it depends clearly on the person. The fund managers that we work with, we spend a lot of time understanding their motivations and what they want to get out of life. And, you know, I think we're pretty convinced by the time we make a commitment that the groups that we work with want to stay small. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you a really extreme example. There's a fund manager in China that we know quite well. First fund was 32 million, 10x. Second fund was 37 million. Believe it or not, it was a 30x. Oh my God. That, that group returned a billion three in cash. Wow. Now, you know, in China, they all want to get big. These guys have gotten, you know, have made a lot of money uh, just from the carry on a billion three. But, you know, their next fund is 50 million, and they want to be small, and they want to be work. They think that's the right number to be early stage for in, in the markets that they're pursuing. So, you know, that kind of discipline is actually very admirable and probably easier to say that you're going to do that than actually do it because yeah. you see this sort of inflation in fund size. But I would argue that, at least with our fund managers, all but two have stayed at the seed stage. They've all gotten a little bit bigger, but it's largely because the round sizes have gotten bigger. Yeah. I'm curious why there hasn't been something like a YC, but for fund managers, something that takes it takes all the people who are emerging managers, firing managers out there, building their demo funds, and takes some, you know, some economics in addition to some capital and has the mini YC. Yeah, I, you know, I've been batting around this idea, this is somewhat a similar idea with some of my LP friends. And, you know, what, what it is, so one idea was, why don't we focus on these nano funds, these sub-$15 million funds, maybe like these 5 to $10 million funds. You know, there are a lot of studies that show the first fund is actually the best fund in terms of performance. But I think it's partly because it's so tiny, typically. But, you know, why not have a roster of small, tiny funds and that we would you know, maybe, um, you know, get them, we, it'd be like, why say we get them going, train them thinking about portfolio construction, about, you know, uh, all the different angles. But, you know, ultimately what I realized is that unlike YC, where they have a whole bunch of, you know, BC funds that actually lead the next round, in the institutional LP world, if we didn't, and we mean collectively the group that, let's say I assembled and came in and, and did a YC for C funds, these nano funds. If we didn't follow on, if we didn't do the next fund, we basically kill that group. Yeah. So we don't want to be in a position of doing that. And so I think our job is actually to find, you know, whether be flexible enough that we, we could invest in a $5 million fund and maybe that'll be a 50 X, you know, yeah. and that would be a great return. Yeah. In the next five to 10 years, how do you expect your job to be different or even just the seed ecosystem to, to change over time? There, we talked about some small changes. We talked about some bigger attempts that people are making with new models and using data, and, you know, different, different types of things. But what do you expect to, to change? I, I, I think that, you know, um, historically, uh, our fund managers have been from the Bay Area, New York, maybe a little bit in Boston and L.A., and what, I, I, what we're hearing from our fund managers and what we see every day almost is that 
you know, they historically would say, yeah, we're back, we're backing only firms in our companies in our own backyard. But we're actually seeing more and more dispersion now. So funds that are based in, in San Francisco are investing in companies in Chicago, Atlanta, Austin, Boulder. And I think it's partly because it's very expensive to be living here in San Francisco. And so, you know, the CEO might be here, but her team, her dev team might actually be in Austin or, or Boulder. And so I think that's a perfectly rational thing that's happening in the market. I think um, also that, you know, outside the U.S., you know, you're seeing a lot more uh, early stage formation and entrepreneurs actually proliferating. I mean, think about where Germany was, you know, historically where graduates of the universities would go into big companies. And, and now that's not the case. It's a lot more entrepreneurial. And I think starting in the 90s and well, especially in the 2000s, people, even like something as silly as that Facebook movie, I think people are, a lot more kids are seeing entrepreneurs as being sort of the heroes. What was kind of disturbing though, is that there's this backlash clearly, right? Right now against the big tech companies, whether it's for becoming a platform that enables this, that, or the other thing, or, or censoring, or, you know, generally influencing how the world thinks and perhaps some people don't like that um and so you know a number of people across the aisles have been talking about perhaps breaking them up and so you know i think that's the first time you really have this backlash against technology and you know it, it's partly because you know what it is it's, it's the fact that everyone has a smartphone they have a computer in their hand and you know in developing countries you know, they basically skip out, forget about laying out uh, cable and, and telephone lines. You know, you go straight to the wireless and you can bypass that huge infrastructure cost and basically get everybody online. Like l- last year, I took my family to Africa. You know, the generally the villages kind of look the same, but everyone has a smartphone. And M-Pesa, which is the mobile payment thing in Africa, everyone had that and used it. So, you know, I, I, I think... Just because so many people are more connected and being able to execute online, you know, commerce or whatever, or, or, or you know, certainly communications, technology is is, is super pervasive. It reflect it's reflected in the top ten largest companies by market cap, etc. You know, you see it everywhere, and I think there's this backlash. And so, in five to ten years, I think you know, you really got to wonder how the role of government and how they they are going to you know, impact, whether positively or negative, probably negatively, the larger tech companies. Yeah. And could you see yourself backing a manager in Africa? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we met with a number of them. Uh, I wouldn't say there's a whole bunch of them, but uh, the biggest issue for those guys and gals is that they need follow-on capital, and there's not much follow-on capital. Yeah. Um, So their funds have to be a little bit larger so that they can keep the companies alive. And then... You know, maybe maybe they can attract a, a firm from Europe or the U.S. Does can you, uh, you know, SoftBank just put in all this money to LATAM? Right. Could you see yourself? Oh yeah, I mean, we've been from the get-go looking at different seed funds in, in Latin America. Again, it's the lack of follow-on capital. You know, there's a great firm in Brazil called Kazakh, and we started talking to those guys in, in for their first fund. And you know, they were two of the co-founders of Mercado Libre. They went to Stanford GSB. They're actually Argentine, but they most of their investments are in Brazil. They've done a tremendous job, but you know, and it was looking really good when you know Axel, Peter Thiel, Thrive Capital, Andreessen, they were all looking to do follow-ons. But that kind of dried up actually to, to some extent, and then certainly their currency got devalued, and the political turmoil has created somewhat of an issue in, 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 in intrinsic to localized to Brazil. 
But, you know, I think, generally speaking, the tr- if you take a wider uh, arc the timeline, the trend is your friend. Indonesia is one of the largest countries in the world. And to have every one of them on, you know, co- uh, conducting commerce on smartphones is an amazing thing. You know, India and China, they're all huge. And the, the fact that, you know, um, a startup in China can go to uh, 200, 300 million of revenue in a year is, is remarkable. And they have companies that haven't been around for more than five years that are now public on the, on, in the U.S. stock exchanges that have $20 billion market caps. Yeah. You could argue, on the other hand, that they're way overvalued, but, you know, it's just remarkable. I mean, if you just even in the U.S., you look at a company like Hems or Romans or any of those type of companies, they largely have gotten to three, uh, sorry, nine-figure revenue amounts in one year. Wow. In the last 10, 15 years, you've seen the venture ecosystem uh, become a lot more transparent. It, the composition has a little bit changed in that there's a lot more founders becoming VCs. Seems to skew a little bit younger, uh, but it's certainly a lot more transparent, founder-friendly. I'm curious if you're going to see a change in the LP ecosystem in the next decade, becoming more transparent, more more diversified, perhaps. What I would say is that the it, it really comes down to like motivations. You know, if you're at a blue chip university endowment, you know you're proud of the work that you do, the access that you have, but probably the portfolio you, you're working on has already been built up. And so you've got to find that one or two new stars. Um, and venture is not even really an asset class. You know, I mean, you, with you know public market equities, you can, you can plenty of groups that are doing you know mid cap value U.S. equities, and they all standard deviation uh, within one or two you know uh, little tiny uh, bands of that. But in venture, you know, the standard deviation, meaning the the spread of I think the the performance and the risk. Is, 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 is very broad. And, you know, you, I don't think you can just say, hey, I'm going to devote 10% of my portfolio of my endowment to venture. Because if you're not in the best firms, or at least the ones that look like they're going to be emergingly the best firms, then you, you shouldn't be in it. In fact, you should be in small buyout uh, because you can get it 2x faster with less risk. But, you know, what you see is because of quantitative easing, a huge amount of capital since 2008 coming into the private markets. The, the public equities have really grown, obviously, and because of that, and because groups have allocations to private markets, that has pulled up, right? And so, you know, if you're a, a $10 billion group and suddenly now you're a $40 billion group, and, you know, you have a certain amount allocated to private markets, you're putting more into these funds. That's why VC funds have gotten bigger. That's why you know you see C funds um, proliferating. I think, generally speaking, though, I think it really depends on the type of LP. University endowments are historically considered at the top of the food chain because they have perpetual capital. They're not fundraising. Groups like mine are kind of at the bottom because we're we have to fundraise ourselves, so we're not stable capital, or so they say. You know, family offices have become much, much larger. I would argue a lot of family offices are very sophisticated in terms of what they look at. And so, you know, there's just simply a lot more capital deployed, sovereign wealth funds, hedge funds. They're all getting into venture. And that's, on the one hand, absolutely terrible for startups and early stage investors in that, you know, to use an example, SoftBank Vision Fund coming in and giving a startup $500 million, that may not be the best thing for them because they might not have hit their figured out their unit economics, right? Um, and it makes perhaps the CEO a little bit uh, less disciplined in terms of finding, uh, getting the company to, you know, basically uh, cash flow positive unit economics. 
On the other hand, it's been great for our seed fund managers. And I'll tell you why. We're, our managers are doing a lot of secondaries now. So when the company crosses that billion dollar mark, when they become a unicorn, in that round, our, our fund managers are actually trying to sell 20, 30% of their position. And you know we've seen a lot more of that just in the last six months. Do you think we're in for a reckoning in the next few years? Whether it's you know, valuations coming down, or a ton of seed funds just being washed out? You know, so um, there's been resets, certainly. So, like, if you remember in the uh, Q1 of 2016, LinkedIn actually fell. They lost half their value in one day. And that was kind of a major reset of enterprise multiples, you know, from 8x to down to 4x. They've kind of climbed back. But in our minds, that was actually a positive thing because there's a major disconnect between public market and private market valuations. And, you know, again, not to pick on anybody, but, like, Dropbox's rate is raised at 10 billion back then, and Box went public at about 2 billion. And you know, if you looked at the different revenue multiples, there was a disconnect. And so, you know, I think Dropbox, and it's been publicly stated, uh, you know, basically had to buckle down, cut costs, get their unit economics right, and then get them in a position where they could go public. Right? That took some time, and I think that was probably better for the company in order to go through that discipline, go through that uh, transformation. And so, you know, clearly, you know, the stock market's not just going to go keep going up. I mean, obviously, there's going to be some sort of uh, material downturn, you know, whether that's in a year or five years or 10 years, I don't know, and I'm not going to try to predict it. But what I would say is that, what I can say is that I think our seed guys and gals are, are really well positioned because, you know, there is a lot of later stage committed capital from sovereign wealth funds, from the hedge funds, from the big growth funds, to even the Sandhill Road funds that are all billion dollars in size now, there's a lot of late stage capital. And I think good companies get funded no matter what. So if you look at like uh, post Lehman bankruptcy in 2008, September 08, you know, within nine months, Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, Slack, uh, Pinterest, those companies were formed within the, the next nine to 12 months. And those were the dark days, if you remember. So, you know, I don't think, you can time technology, and as long as there's capital out there, um, and you know that capital might be harder to pry out of people's hands. But I think at the seed stage, our, our fund managers can sell for relatively low valuations and still get their money back. Yeah, is there a um, what Angelus has has done among other things is uh, expand the amount of people that can be angels. People can raise, raise funds, people build profiles, founders can find them easier. Do you think something will exist at that sort of scale in the LP world, uh, where there will be newer uh, LPs? It'll be easier to become a micro LP, and it will become you know, they all have profiles. Here are all their funds because right now it's sort of a yeah. I mean, I think so. You, again, you just philosophically, you got to wonder about adverse selection. So if something is on angel list, and I'm not picking on angel list in the ball, but um, if something is on angel list, you got to wonder, well, how come they didn't raise the whole thing through you know. Mike Maples or Steve Anderson or one of our fund managers. So then, you know, you got to wonder why am I being shown this? I think every individual investor, as well as any institutional investor, has to be thinking, why am I being shown this, right? And so, um, you know, you could argue that with um, on the LP side, the funds are bigger, the ti- the timing of the raises is longer, right? Like some of the hot companies in the startup world go for like in a week, yeah. right? But generally speaking, funds don't go in a week unless you're like Sequoia or Benchmark. Um, and so you, there is time to think about it. But I think, you know, if you're 
not in a major hub of venture, um, it's a little bit more difficult to actually know what's what's better. You know, is A better than B, or is B a little bit better than C? Who, who you know, the average person probably wouldn't know. I'm not saying I would know, but you know, to your point, the world is becoming a lot more transparent. The LP world, especially. And I think people generally know what we look for. We look for groups that lead their deals in ecosystems that have a lot of fall on capital. If, if any investor took that playbook, they could actually do a pretty good job, I think, of, of finding um, very good seed funds and, um, you know, more, more power to them. Yeah. Have you done any uh, university funds or, or do you find that, that space interesting? I mean, we spent time looking at groups that uh, try to commercialize university research and I think um, there's some amazing things coming out of the different universities. But generally speaking, um, you know, the teams that are, uh, are around those technologies may not be the teams that can scale the company, right? Because they may be the, the guy or the gal who actually discovered or created uh, or invented, you know, some, some sort of technology or process. But they, that might be their, their amazing superpower, but it's maybe not likely that that superpower is to build a company around it. So then you have the additional complexity of finding a team to help take that to the next level. So I would say that there are funds who do this, and some of them have been pretty successful, but I think in general, it's an extremely hard thing to do. And then the other element is they're not necessarily capital efficient. So you might come up with a, a great process for semiconductor making, but that's not really a seed-funded kind of opportunity set. Yeah, makes sense. What uh, last uh, advice would you, would you give out there for people who are uh, looking to create demo funds or looking to uh, you know, learn from the wisdom of, of your uh, you know your emerging managers? You know, so um, when I raised my first fund, it took me two years, and you know our most. So now people are like, oh, it must be so easy for you to raise a fund. And the way I answer that is, you know, when I first started, 99.9% of the people I pitched said no. And now 99% say no. And so it's really a question of, and there's no real right or wrong answer about it, but it's perseverance, grit, and determination, and the the optimism that what you want to do is actually going to be right. But at some point, you know, if, if you're not getting any traction, you've got to stop and, and, and pursue something else, I think. Yeah. Uh, fortunately for us, there was some early product market fit, and now there's pretty good product market fit. But, um, you know, the other thing that I would warn first-time fund managers is that, you know, you don't want to spend three years trying to raise a fund. You know, if you can raise 2 to $4 million and you can kind of get by, you know, on a sort of ramen kind of budget, go out and do what Kirsten did, which was phenomenal invest in a portfolio of companies, have those CEOs take reference calls and say you're an amazing investor, and then, then you're off to the races. My guest today has been Michael Cameron from Donna Capital. Michael, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.